Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It could be the biggest schism in Christianity since 1054. We're going to talk about the very political dispute in the Orthodox Church. With me is Worldview's Julian Haida. He's writing his thesis on the intersection of religion and politics in Ukraine. Julian comes from a 400-year-old line of Greek Catholic priests from Ukraine. And Julian has been talking about the schism uh, around the office here for days, the possibility of the schism, and it seems like it's starting to happen. Can you explain what happened here in the Orthodox Church? Well, it's not quite a schism yet in the sense that schism takes mutual excommunication. So if you think of the great schism in 1054, it was the Pope of Rome and the four uh, Eastern patriarchs excommunicated each other. But what happened uh, just a couple of days ago um, on October 15th is that the Patriarch of Moscow, the head of the Russian Orthodox Church, uh, the largest of the Orthodox churches, basically forbade anybody associated with that church from participating in services conducted by people loyal to the Greek Orthodox Church headed by uh, the more senior patriarch of Constantinople, the ecumenical patriarch of Constantinople, uh, who, like I said, is the head of the Greek Orthodox Church, because this patriarch asserted his authority to claim that Ukraine is his rightful territory. So churches are a lot like states, like countries. Uh, They have citizens. They have borders. They have territories. They, um, you know, assign where the borders are and they assign who can cross what borders and where. And so basically the head of the um, external communications uh, for, for the Moscow Patriarchate, the Russian Orthodox Church, said this is akin to cutting off diplomatic ties to a foreign country. So what was happening was the Russian patriarch was in charge of all the Orthodox in Ukraine. He had, he had like jurisdiction over Ukraine. And um, now he doesn't. Ukraine gets to go its own way. So it's a, it's a long and complicated history that starts in the first century <laughs> uh, because that's how things work in the Orthodox world. Uh, but basically what happened is this decision, which came out on uh, October 11th, reversed a decision that the Greek Orthodox patriarch, the ecumenical patriarch, made in 1686, and it was a synodal letter. It means it was a kind of like a non-binding or like a, like a temporary uh, administrative change that let the patriarch of Moscow have the right to assign priests and bishops on the territory of Ukraine. And so what this decision from a week ago says is that the patriarch of Constantinople is the rightful head of the church in Ukraine and that he is revoking the temporary administrative authority of Moscow over Ukraine. Is, and this is all about the conflict between Ukraine and Russia, that, that they're getting along so poorly and uh, the Russians are in charge of this church. It's like a sovereignty issue for Ukraine. Right. So in that part of the world, um, not only does the church 
operate in a similar manner to the state, but the church and the state often operate in parallel. So when this decision was handed down, the president of Ukraine said that uh, you know this is a uh, a final realization of Ukraine's sovereignty. So even though Ukraine as a state has been independent since 1991, um, a nation isn't independent in this formulation that the Orthodox world constructs until it has a state church. Um, it doesn't work for everybody. There's There's the intricacies of history. There are countries that aren't majority Orthodox that still have a national church. Um, but nonetheless, the, the the borders between these churches um, are typically also borders of nations and, and likewise today states. I'm talking with Worldview's Julian Haida about the schism in the Orthodox – or the near schism in the near Orthodox schism. Orthodox Church. And we are going to take some phone calls on this topic. There's a lot of people involved here, and the number is 312-923-9239 if you have some thoughts on what's happening in the Orthodox Church, 312-923-9239. I wanted to ask um, a question about uh, what what exactly is – going on here with the politics and, and how this reverberates out to the rest of the world. Because there's people saying, well, this is going to affect all Orthodox people in the United States, in in Africa, in places far away from Russia and Ukraine and uh, Constantinople. <laughs> but uh, it's uh, – how is this going to affect people? It affects people in, in, in much the way that um – Again, state politics affects people. So for people who – for whom the church is very important, uh, it becomes a question of am I allowed to go to that church for fear of repercussion in my church? But um, a, a lot of this goes way back in history. You know, what – which states have which authority to do what? And this is a classic story of clashing empires as well. Because the Patriarchate of Constantinople, the very reason this situation exists is because Constantinople as the capital of the Byzantine Empire, as the center of, of Eastern Christianity was, as we all know, uh, sacked in the 1400s by the Ottomans. And so all of a sudden the leader of – all of the Christians east of Rome, because that schism happened 400 year, years prior, um, was in a city that didn't recognize either his civic authority or his religious authority. And very shortly thereafter, you had uh, a rising uh, state surrounding Moscow, the kind of early roots of the Russian Empire saying, well, if Rome fell to the barbarians and fell to heresy in 1054 and that their politics, you know, the Holy Roman Empire and all these, these, these constructions of the Bishop of Rome, the Pope of Rome in, over, over state politics of Western Europe, if that is – illegitimate and, and, and that is antithetical to Christianity from, from, a, from an Eastern perspective. And Constantinople, the 
second most senior of the churches after Rome is being forced out of its capital and and no longer can it, can the Byzantine emperor provide protection for this church that has existed since the first century, then perhaps there must be a third Rome. And this ideology that Moscow has the potential as a rising state to become the third Rome, the center of all legitimate Christianity, is part of the founding narrative of the Russian state. The Russians are empire building with their religion is <laughs> what the, what you might be saying. The, the Explain what happens with Vladimir Putin and religion because he's taken a different tact and I don't think probably people appreciate uh, what a pious guy he is and how involved in the Russian Orthodox Church he is. And uh, tell us something about him and the church. Yeah, I mean, the the church since Vladimir Putin rose to power, uh, you know, 17, 18 odd years ago, um, has uh, grown in its kind of prestige in the state. Uh, there have been 20,000 church, churches built across Russia in uh, in recent years, many of which have been paid for by close affiliates of, of the president. Um, but he's also built churches abroad. Um, there was recently, uh, about 10 years ago, a church built in Rome on a hill overlooking the Vatican. So in some photos, you see this Russian Orthodox church apparently – over Rome. And when the narrative, the state narrative in Russia that Vladimir Putin has built in the 2000s and in recent years is fighting the West or a, or, or a sort of exile for the West, um, to have a photograph of a church over the Vatican is very powerful because – in that mindset where the church and the state are associated when you have your church above their church, it, 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 it speaks to people. We're going to take a quick phone call here, and the number to call is 312-923-9239. We're talking about the um, near schism in the Orthodox Church. Hi, you're on WBEZ. Hi. Um, I have a question about the role that the Ukrainian church played in this. Did they want to be moved to be under the jurisdiction of the uh, Greek church? Julian? So there are um, four churches in Ukraine that all claim the same roots, uh, that all claim the same origins as Christians who have descended from the – I'm sure you've seen their, their famous paintings of, of Prince Vladimir um, baptizing the nation of Kiev and Rus, the, the kind of medieval kingdom that existed in what is now Ukraine with uh, a territory in Belarus and, 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 and Russia but centered in Kiev, the capital of Ukraine. And the, – 
each of these four churches that exist in Ukraine now and the Russian Orthodox Church claim to be descended from this event that happened in 988 AD. And every single one of them, depending on, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of it has to do with colonial relations, have to do with the church's relationships with the colonial powers that have had their eye on that part of the world. And so, for example... Uh, so the Ukrainian president came out and said, this is great. The Ukrainian president, in fact, asked for this. Now, we remember that the Ukrainian president came to power four years ago after a revolution in which the church, in many respects, I mean, didn't officially take sides, but took sides. Uh, there's a famous photograph that I believe ran in the Wall Street Journal of monks from the the. 10th century monastery of the caves in Kiev holding a cross and a banner in front of the riot police. And it just so happens that that monastery is part of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church of the Moscow Patriarchate, which uh, is an offshoot of uh, the Russian Orthodox Church. Um, and then you had clergy from the Kievan Patriarchate, which in the last 10 or 15 years or so has become the largest Christian church in Ukraine, uh, although isn't recognized. It doesn't have what's called uh, canonical status, which is sort of like diplomatic recognition, right? Jerome, yeah. you and I can declare independence of our new yep. country here on Navy Pier, but if nobody recognizes it, doesn't matter. Now, imagine that country is in downtown Kiev and has 20 million people and no other countries recognize it. Well, that was a church that was unrecognized, even though it had 20 million people. And that is the church that has led the charge for independence of a Ukrainian church. There are other churches, the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church, which I'm part of, which in 1594 was founded by a group of uh, Orthodox bishops who sought to reverse the Great Schism of 1054 and created a, some call it a uniate church, an Orthodox church that is in union with Rome. Uh, that church has kind of taken a sidestep in this issue. But uh, at the same time as there are conversations between Rome, Moscow, and Constantinople over a potential reunification of the Orthodox and Catholic worlds, uh, oftentimes what is cited as a stumbling block is the existence of these so-called uniates, which are um, – which claim to be uh, both here and there Catholic and Orthodox at the same time, uh, which many Orthodox say is impossible. Um, Jillian, um, how should outsiders look at this? How should people who are not immersed in the Orthodox world understand what's happening and the importance of what's happening? I think a lot of um, what's at stake here is state geopolitics in the sense that particularly in Ukraine but in Russia as well, um, where corruption, state corruption is very rampant and people don't necessarily feel that the state is working for them, many people turn to a church to feel like they can determine what is best 
for their family and their country, right? So, so you know, the the social safety net in many post-Soviet countries collapsed in the 1990s. A lot of things privatized, and it just so happens that the church is at the forefront of 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 you know filling in the gaps where the state is no longer, and so. All of a sudden, when you live in a country like Ukraine, which has four churches, whether you go to a Moscow Patriarchate Church or a Kievan Patriarchate Church, or it, it, you're voting with your feet, you're determining what kind of state politics, um, because these churches associate with political ideologies, not intentionally, but they do, because when you belong to a church that asserts its independence versus a church that says, no, it is the right thing to be part of the Russian church. There's a, there's a decision that's being made there. Jillian Haida is writing his thesis on the intersection of religion and politics in Ukraine, and we're talking about what could be the biggest schism in Christianity since 1054, the very political dispute inside the Orthodox Church. We are taking a few phone calls at 312-923-9239, and we'll be back with more after the break. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. We're talking about the dispute in the Orthodox Church. It could be the biggest schism in Christianity since 1054. With me is Worldview's Julian Haida. He's writing his thesis on the intersection of religion and politics in Ukraine. Julian comes from a 400-year-old line of Greek Catholic priests from Ukraine. We were talking um, before the show started a bit about uh, what Stalin's relationship with the church was and how he used it during World War II. And it explains a lot about the church's political nature in in Russia. Uh, What happened with Stalin? Stalin reestablished the Moscow Patriarchate um, because if if there's anything many – uh, know about the Soviet Union is that it was an atheist state. So to kind of rewind a little bit, the the Moscow Patriarchate was established in the first place in the late 1400s after the collapse of Constantinople by Boris Godunov of the opera fame as he was building a Russian state. And, and it was – the idea was that would be a center – around which a patriarchate would be a center around which a new Russian state could form. So from that point, even in the you know, 1500s, 14, you know, that the, 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 the church could be a, a, a source 
of nationalism. Now, that got really threatening to Tsar Peter the Great, who abolished the patriarchate because he felt that the patriarch was too powerful. And 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 so for for goodness, you know, close to 200 years, there was there was no Moscow patriarchy. Now, what happened during the Russian Revolution, the collapse of the you know the, the Russian Empire and the Romanovs, is that the Russian Orthodox came together and said, you know what, we do deserve a patriarchate, and they uh, established the Moscow Patriarchate. But of course, at the same time as the rise with the rise of the Bolsheviks, uh, the Moscow Patriarchate was forced into exile. Clergy were executed. It's actually around the same time that the Ukrainian Orthodox Church became. Uh, reorganized as an independent church and was recognized in 1924, and um, and 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 this was a, a turbulent period between 1917 and 1921, where Ukraine declared independence, and then after about four years of independence, was annexed um, and, and absorbed into the Soviet Union. Now, fast forward to World War II. Um, after the end of the uh, Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, the non-aggression pact between the Nazis and the the Soviets. Um, the Soviet Union didn't know how to effectively fight off the Nazis. And one of the things that won people over on a local level was the Nazis saying, remember how bloody it was when the Bolsheviks came through this village and executed your priest and executed anybody with an open expression of of, of faith? Um, we will let you pray once more in public. And on a local level, that was a very powerful kind of tool as the Nazis were invading the Soviet Union. Now, what Stalin did is is that he realized, I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a theory uh, very popular in, in sociology, Benedict Anderson, the creation of, of, of the origins of nationalism, is that a nation is a powerful ideology because it 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 almost mimics religion in its own right, and it is rooted in religion. And what 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 happened is that he realized that ideology wasn't worth fighting for. That the Red Army was dying at rates two or three times higher than the Nazis were dying because they weren't willing to put their lives down for the proletariat. They weren't willing to put their lives down for Lenin. The only thing that Stalin realized that the, the, the people would die for was the state. So instead of the proletariat, you had Mother Russia. Uh, instead of uh, Lenin, you had your family and your church. So Stalin brings religion back into the fold to make people fight. Stalin reinvited the patriarch of Moscow to Moscow to reestablish the church. And the patriarch of Moscow that exists today is descended from this patriarch um, who was, was brought to power by Stalin during World War II to create nationalism. Very interesting. We're talking with Worldview's Julian Haida about the dispute in the Orthodox Church. We've got uh, Ted on the line with us. You're on WBEZ, Ted. Patriot. Hi, Ted. Go ahead. 
Ah, good morning. Uh, with regard to the ecumenical patriarch recognizing the Ukrainian church, I think that's a good thing. Um, we have every country having its own church. Uh, you take a look at Europe. Every country essentially has their own Orthodox church. And so Ukraine being a separate country, I think it makes sense for them to have their own rule, their own autocephalous church. Um, one of the problems that we have here in the United States is that there are so many different autocephalous churches occupying the same ground. So you can go to a big city like Chicago and you can find Ukraine and Greek and Antiochian yeah. and Romanian, and it's so non-cohesive. So I think it's good that the church, Ukraine, has its own setup. Do you have some thoughts about that, Julian? I mean, it, it, it makes sense. It, 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 I mean, if Ukraine had four churches, but the U.S. has a dozen churches, especially in this time where we're not quite sure which church is getting along with which church, um, things can get messy. Um, but that's part of the American uh, kind of religious setup anyway. I mean, we have a radical freedom of religion uh, in this country where you can, you know, defend your church. And a lot of these issues between the churches that are recognized uh, or, or that operate, the Orthodox churches that operate in the United States, a lot of the issues have to really get sorted out um, overseas. They have to get sorted out between uh, Greece and Moscow. So, for example, the Greek Orthodox Church is the largest church uh, in the United States. Uh, in a uh, close second is uh, the Orthodox Church in America, which is uh, – it is an independent church, but it is a spun off from uh, the Russian Orthodox uh, Metropolia, the Russian Orthodox Church in the United States. It, it became called the Orthodox Church in America in the 1970s. What happens when you belong to one of those churches and you married someone who who who, who is in the other church? Um, and what happens when uh, one of those churches uh, takes a side? Uh, there is a, a think tank in Washington D.C. that that you know works with some of the. Um, members in the State Department on on formulating policy towards Russia, and they have connections to the church. Um, at the same time, when the Greek Orthodox Church, uh, when they're you know, for example, they built they were building uh, a church at Ground Zero, one of the only religious uh, buildings that were destroyed during the terrorist attacks of September 11th was a Greek Orthodox Church, and uh, now there's a church that stands uh, that was supposed to be rebuilt and it's supposed to be very grand. It's supposed to be a center for mourning and reconciliation, and it's now standing vacant at the site of Ground Zero because a lot of the money for that church disappeared. And so. If I were the patriarch of Constantinople and I were head of the Greek Orthodox Church, I would look at the United States and say, you know, well, they have an issue internally. I would look at a, a place like Ukraine and I would see them asking for some help. I would look to the people of Greece who have been living under terrible austerity and thought that maybe Russia could bail them out. But alas, Russia as a petrostate that is waging two wars is not on the best financial footing. And then I look at the 
uh, refugees, both Christian and non-Christian, coming from the Middle East, where the Orthodox Church has existed since the beginning of Christianity as well, uh, coming to places like Greece and, and asking for help. So as the patriarch of Constantinople, your, your, your mandate is unity, both politically and religiously, in a world that um, is asking for help. So I think it's more of an issue of triage than anything else. We're talking with Worldview's Julian Haida. He is writing his thesis on the intersection of religion and politics in Ukraine. And we've been talking about the political dispute in the Orthodox Church. And uh, sometimes I think we think, well, we've got a little more separation of church and state, but we still do have a melding of church and state power in this country. And we're going to hear a clip here from Pastor Robert Jeffries reading a letter from Mike Pence. And I was surprised and gratified just yesterday to have received an unexpected letter overnight from the Vice President of the United States of America, Mike Pence. And he wrote this letter to you. He wanted me to read it to you. He said, greetings to each of you gathered at First Baptist Church of Dallas in celebration of Freedom Sunday. For 150 years, First Baptist Dallas has been an anchor of faith in the heart of Texas, serving as the hands and feet of Jesus in your congregation and your community. I am grateful for your work and witness and the difference that you make in the life of our nation every day. As President Trump and I both know, America's strength ultimately comes from our freedom. And that's uh, Robert Jeffries reading a letter from uh, Mike Pence talking about uh, some of the things that uh, are important to nations, which is religion. how do we digest the, the things that we do that are, are kind of religion and nation-state blending, uh, Julian? So there is a concept in the Orthodox world known as symphonia. And that is – it's not quite a separation of church and state in the sense that we think of in the post-Enlightenment Western world. But it is the church and state intimately collaborating toward a common goal. Now – you look at a place like uh, the United States, and then you look at a place like Russia, and you think, well, goodness, you know, there is no state church in the United States. And we don't have a patriarch, the head of a state church in the United States. But I'll make a, I'll make a comparison that just comes to mind is, is when Russia began to intervene in Syria – uh, a lot of the popular support for that came from the Patriarch of Moscow appealing to the faithful of the Russian Orthodox Church saying, this is a holy war. So I mean, we're revisiting the Crusades here. And a lot of the same rhetoric or similar rhetoric comes from, you know, just uh, the other day, Pat Robertson said, well, why should we worry about the life of one pesky journalist when our country depends on so much life-giving money from Saudi Arabian arms deals. So it's, it's, it's a comp- it can become a complementary relationship. And given how President Trump has um, depended on people like 
Pat Robertson or Robert Jeffries or Franklin Graham, whose father actually very famously went to uh, Russia in uh, the 1990s and expressed his surprise at how Christian the country was. Um, it, it there are definitely parallels in 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 the ways in, in the kind of in the kind of utopia the political utopia that the church that the members of of, of certain and again this is i'm going to use this word kind of in in a broad theoretical concept but in the colonial kind of utopia that some church leaders imagine for their state and um impose that on their allies in government. And, and it seems like in the United States, the evangelical leaders in Trump are a very, very po- in a very powerful symphonia, much like the Russian Orthodox Church and Vladimir Putin are in a very powerful symphonia. And that's actually appealed, uh, this narrative that the Russian Orthodox Church is defending Western values. So from, from the left-wing kind of perspective. Many people look at Russia as the anti-Western, anti-colonial, anti-imperial power, right? They're waging the war in Syria because they're against the American colonizers. But from a right-wing perspective, you have a lot of people pointing to Russia and saying, this is a country that defends Christian values by defending Christians in the Middle East and defending against things like the sin of homosexuality, you know, the church would say. And so you have, for example, there was a a pastor here in Illinois who converted to the Orthodox Church and during the 2016 presidential election moved him and his – I think he has seven children to Russia to start a commune for American white supremacists to flee the oppression of the United States really? because the United – because Russia is a, a place where right-wing Christian values can be lived out. So Russia is playing this right-wing kind of colonial ideology and this kind of left-wing – also colonial ideology against each other. And you see that playing out on, on places like social media where we talk about bots and trolls and the kind of things that, that, that are created. They appeal to both sides and both of those sides are genuine. They're showing both of the sides of Vladimir Putin, the KGB agent, the ardent communist, and the person who builds 20,000 churches is photographed in a church that he had commissioned to be built for the opening of the Sochi Games, most, one of the most beautiful churches. Um, and he can play both sides because they can be played off of each other um, pretty easily if, if you just find that right language and you find the right flaws um, in, 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 in your opponent. Julian Haida is writing his thesis on the intersection of religion and politics in Ukraine. He comes from a line of 400-year line of Greek Catholic priests from Ukraine. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about the schism in the Orthodox Church, maybe the biggest schism since 1054. Great to see you. Great to talk with you, Julian. Thank you very much, Jerome. Coming up after the break, we'll have our global activism segment where we feature people who make the world a better place, and we'll talk about the Women's Global Education Project. I'm Jerome McDonnell. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for our global activism segment where we feature people who make the world a better place. Earlier this month, it was International Day of the Girl. Among the groups celebrating was the Women's Global Education Project. They're helping young women in Senegal and Kenya stay in school and go to school. Executive Director Amy Maglio is here with me. Good to see you, Amy. Um, could you tell me, for people who've never heard of the Women's Global Education Project, and you've been with us a couple times before in the program, um, what is it? What is the Women's Global Education Project? Yeah, well, I'll tell you how I got started. That kind of gives you the idea. Um, the idea kind of came to me after I served as a Peace Corps volunteer in Senegal, uh, in West Africa. I lived in a mud hut in a rural village in the middle of nowhere, um, no running water, no electricity for almost three years. And it was there where I saw firsthand the impact that going to school could have um, on a girl's confidence, on her ability to decide for herself her own future. Um, and when I came back from Senegal, I decided to do something about that, to start an organization dedicated to helping girls, no matter your background, no matter who you are, the ability to decide for yourself your own future. And the literacy rate for girls in Senegal in these rural areas was really low. It was like 15% when I first started, um, and it's it's slowly increasing. Um, so for women's literacy, it's, it's increasing slower than you know adolescent girls, who is the big push now to keep in school and help them to complete their secondary education. So uh, tell us a little about the program itself. You've got hundreds of girls now who are going to school in this area and in Kenya. Um, th- it, there's lots of good news. Yeah. So our first year, 14 years ago, we got 10 girls into school and prayed. Um, and now we have impacted over 14,000 women and girls in 73 different communities in Senegal and Kenya. And we see that our girls are not only are um, accessing education, but they're able to stay in school from all the support services that we're able to provide. We're able to help girls succeed and pass critical exams in order to move on to the next grade. Um, and also we see more of our scholars getting into universities. Now, I know that you had um, a moment here with International Day of the Girl, which was earlier this week. Uh, Tell us about what you did and what happened. Yeah, so I I had a really exciting week. Um, Women's Global is part of the Global Girls Alliance, which is uh, an initiative started by the Obama Foundation and really Michelle Obama. And we were invited to celebrate International Day of the Girl last Thursday in New York, where she launched this initiative on the Today Show. So we got to be in the audience and share the, um, the celebration of her launch of this new Global Girls Initiative. And I imagine it's cool to see other organizations who are similarly dedicated like yours is. It was. It was. It's really great that she's able to, you know, bring us together and share best practices and talk to one another and talk about ways that we can collaborate. And in the future, it'll help with fundraising in, to some degree? Yeah, get... so I think part of this is to to elevate awareness around the importance of girls' education and to drive more funding to that issue. Um, and so the Global Girls Alliance has developed a platform of GoFundMe projects, of which we are one, um, and it's going to help um, us uh, in fundraising and raise awareness about the issue. Do you think uh, Michelle Obama will ever come to one of your events? Wouldn't it be I am exciting? hoping. I invited her. <laughs> <laughs> I'll bet you did. <laughs> but I mean, it was super fun to meet her and meet. Uh, is there another organization that you met that you were interested in while you were there? 
Well, let me tell you about Michelle Obama first. She was so (laughs) warm and so um, genuine, enthusiastic about the issue. I I went in and I said to her, you know, thank you so much for highlighting this issue and for the work that you're doing. And she said, no, thank you for doing the work. You know, I can only bring a voice to this issue, but it's you and others out there who are really implementing the projects and getting those girls in school. We're talking with Amy Maglio, Executive Director of the Women's Global Education Project. Uh, every year you do a event, and you it's called Endaji, which is... Uh party meeting it's a celebration it's a, a in the in the national language in senegal wolof ndaji means celebration or get together so your celebration is going to be at salvage one on monday october 29th um we made a little movie together we with did. one of your um one of your participants uh, a woman who has gone through the program tell me a little bit about aliana the woman that we talked with We're going to show a movie at the event and everything. Right. So, yeah, thank you for interviewing her. Um, Aliana was in our program. She um, uh, wouldn't wouldn't be able to go to school if it were not for our program. She had no parents, and she was living with her uncle, and she had dropped out of school. And so we identified her for the program, and she wound up graduating from high school, um, going to a a two-year university in community two-year college in community development, and and now she has a job working at, in an NGO um, called Compassion, which works with really vulnerable children in the community. And she really is passionate, and it's just so exciting to see her trajectory from um, you know, living in a rural village and not having access to education herself to being a role model and a leader for other girls in Kenya. And correct me if I'm wrong, but she, her mom was not in the picture and she, her, her, she was living with an uncle. She, and so she really had not an opportunity to go to school. She was in, Yeah, in she a, was no longer living with her parents. Her parents had passed away. And so she was living with an uncle who kind of took her in. Um, and she, she was just, there was not enough money in the family for her to go to school. And so she was overlooked. Looked. She didn't get the opportunity to go to school. And so when the Women's Global Education Project has a scholar like this, you give a lot of different kinds of services and services you might not have ever expected to be giving initially when you started this program. What what do people like Eliana get? Yeah, so she got a scholarship. She got after-school tutoring. She got health education workshops. And she also participated in something um, – Uh, called the Alternative Rite of Passage Program. So in Kenya, when girls um, transition into adulthood, they traditionally go through a, a, a horrible practice called female genital mutilation, or FGM. And so Aliana, if you know she weren't in this program, she she would have practiced FGM, um, and probably immediately after that, dropped out of school and started a family. Um, uh, and in her early teens. So this alternative rite of passage program allowed her to learn about her rights, to learn about her body, to learn about decision making, to learn about harmful cultural practices, um, and 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 go through a transition into adulthood that involved um, a celebration and leadership skills without cutting. So we have a clip here of Aliana, and she's expressing her gratitude for that particular part of the program. The program for me, it is good because it has helped many girls, me included, to enable me to get out of the cultural thing of circumcision, which is something that the culture values it. It can sometimes bring problems like extreme breeding, whereby it can cause even death. 
And to me, the, the, the program has helped me whereby I was taught about many things concerning a woman, the very changes of human being that, that can happen in my, in my body. Like, for example, now that I was not able to be brought up by a mother to encourage me or to guide me in the ways that a, a woman can go, the changes I expect in my body and uh, all I am today is that program that enabled me to understand this is what I need, this is what I am, this is what I can be, and for me, it's the best. That's Aliana, one of the scholars from the Women's Global Education Project, talking about uh, the alternative um, the alternative rite of passage, rite of passage program. Um, so that is a, a powerful thing, that this person, and how many girls have gone through the alternative rite of passage um, over program? Over 2,200 girls. That's mm-hmm. terrific. Um, yeah. That's a good thing. Um, so we're going to play the full interview with Aliana. At, it'll be like six or seven minutes long at the event, and that'll be fun. Yes. Tell us more about Indaji and what's, what, what happens every year. Um, it's a big party, a celebration. Um, people come out and support the organization. We're going to show the full video of your interview with Eliana. Um, there's going to be a live jazz trio. Um, there's going to be a silent auction and uh, paddle rays, and it's going to be uh, a lot of food and and really good time, so you should come. And it's at Salvage One this year, which is a fun place to do it. Um, how do you raise money? You've, you've done, you're, you, how do you get money for the organization? I mean, this is one of the ways you get money, but there's others. There's, there's ways you do it. Yeah, so actually we've had uh, a lot of um, successful fundraising this year. In addition to the annual event, we have been writing proposals like crazy. So (laughs) we have um, gotten some new sources of funding, one from the State Department or the embassy in Senegal. We're actually piloting a new leadership program for girls. So um, that's funded by uh, the State Department in Senegal, and it's a new program. So that's kind of exciting to start a leadership program specifically for adolescent girls. Um, Another way is um, we got some new funding from Caterpillar Foundation this year. So we're writing proposals and looking for new funding and for new opportunities to expand our work. And do people sponsor girls themselves? Do people uh, sponsor a scholar? We we have you can sponsor a class. We don't set up sponsoring one person to one girl um, because we partner with local community based organizations, and really the women who we partner with are the leaders of that program and the mentors to these girls. And we're kind of more behind the scenes working with those leaders to lift girls, the lift girls up. So um, we don't really do sponsorship from people here to individual girls. Uh, you tell me about the people who run the program in the countries, because um, as you mentioned, there's there's no people from the United States running these. It's all Senegalese and Kenyans. Yeah, so we partner with local community-based organizations, women, primarily women who are living and working in these communities and who want to make a difference in their community. So really women, local women activists. And I think that's one of the key um, ingredients or successes for our program is that um, we're on the ground, we're working with local women who have a passion already about these issues and who want to see more girls succeed in their community. And we partner with them to give them the tools and the training that they need to be able to do more of that work. And I think without that ingredient, um, it's just implementing a program, but it's not sustainable. So it's local women working with local 
girls who, exactly. who need help and that are going to respond to local women. Exactly. What's, what's your next biggest uh, plan for Women's Global Education Project? Is there something over the horizon, a goal you have that, that is new or different? Yeah, so we're really looking now to expand our work. Um, we're working on a campaign that's going to allow us to reach 20,000 women and girls. So um, it's really a historic moment for us, a pivotal moment of growth where we're looking to uh, sustain the organization and take it to a new level to be able to influence other programs and um, create other partnerships to expand our model to to more areas of the world. So you're going to go kind of more than the Senegal-Kenya nexus that you're in. You're going to take it larger. Well, right now we're going to go deeper in those communities that we're in. Um, so we want to go deeper. So work within the communities that we're currently working and provide more services in, in, within Senegal and Kenya and then expand through other partnerships throughout the world. Well, congratulations on everything you're doing. Uh, keep up the great work. And Thank we'll see you on Monday night. Thank you. I can't wait. Amy Manglio is executive director of the Women's Global Education Project. You can find them on the Internet at womensglobal.org and get more information about Endaji, which is Monday night from 6 to 9 at Salvage One. Should be a lot of fun. We'll see you there. Steve Bynum sits in for me tomorrow on Worldview on Weekend Edition or Weekend Passport. He has Nari Safavi talking with Bassem Youssef, the comedian who's often called the John Stewart of Egypt. He's coming to town, and you can hear him tomorrow on Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum, Julian Haida, and Galilee Abdullah. Thanks to Viviana Garcia Blanco for production assistance. Thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Mm-hmm.